This summer, Katie and Christine and I are preaching a sermon series called Two Minority Reports from the Hebrew Bible. These are about the two small books in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth and Jonah. This is the fifth and last sermon on the book. This is Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Naomi, her mother-in-law, took the child and laid him in her own bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A grandson has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, as you've heard, Ruth is a 24-year-old childless widow from Moab who follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, across an international border to Bethlehem, where Naomi used to live. Naomi is Jewish. And when Ruth gets to Bethlehem, she makes her living there, gleaning in the barley fields of a prominent 40-year-old landowner named Boaz. Securing her future, Ruth scandalously seduces Boaz. But this makes Boaz so happy, he marries her. Now, this union is improbable, improper, imprudent, and impolitic because Jews hate Moabites and vice versa. There is nobody on either side of that international boundary that will approve of this marriage. But the book of Ruth is about crossing almost impenetrable international boundaries and about embracing the other as your own. We've been calling this series Two Minority Reports in the Hebrew Bible, but I haven't told you what I mean by that, and I haven't told you what the majority report in the Hebrew Bible is. Here's the majority report in the Hebrew Bible. Almost the whole Hebrew Bible is singularly focused on the Jewish tribe and the exclusive blessing God has reserved for that tribe. So the Jews are the chosen people. Israel is the favored nation. Canaan is the promised land. Yahweh is the one true God. So don't have any truck with Gentiles and certainly don't marry them for God's sake. For instance, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Hebrews, when you occupy the promised land, don't intermarry with the people who are already living there. In fact, destroy them, break down their altars, smash their pillars, and burn their idols with fire. Destroy them, says Moses. That's the majority report of the Hebrew Bible. And Ruth is an antidote to that kind of tribalism, exclusivism, parochialism, and nationalism that's practiced by so many of the people of the world so much of the time. Ruth is the tiniest uh, anti-witness, counter-witness, to the attitude which says, if you don't speak my language, don't talk to me. If you are not my color, be my slave. If you are not from here, go back to where you came from. If you eat rice instead of pasta, don't sit at my table. If you wear a sari instead of Levi's, stay away from me. And if you wear scarlet and red instead of maize and blue, stay in Columbus. If you don't worship the same God as I do in the same way, Stay in your own church with your shabby little heresies. And if you are a Jew, wear the yellow star 
live in a ghetto, and then get on a train for Auschwitz. John Updike's 1994 novel Brazil is about an interracial relationship between a white woman and a black man in, you guessed it, Brazil. But in my opinion, it has the greatest first lines of any novel written by an American in the last 30 years. Black is a shade of brown. So is white, if you look. Yes, black is a shade of brown. So is white, if you look. The novel goes on. On Copacabana, the most democratic, crowded, and dangerous of Rio de Janeiro's beaches, all colors merge into one joyous, sun-stunned flesh color, coating the sand with a second living skin. Oh my goodness, John Updike. He's been dead for 15 years and still I miss him so. But what the Book of Ruth and Brazil both say is that interracial, international, and interfaith marriages are the greatest hope humanity has for a happy future. And friendships. I forget where I heard this story. It's probably apocryphal, but it is beautiful. A United States Navy cruiser is anchored in Mobile, Alabama, for a week of shore leave, and on the first night of shore leave, the captain gets a note from a wealthy plantation owner in Mo Mobile. She writes, Captain, my daughter Melinda's debutante ball is on Thursday, and I would like you to send over four handsome, polite, unmarried officers to escort them. The ball starts promptly at 8 on Thursday. It would help if they were good dancers because they were, uh, are going to be escorting these refined young women and one more thing, Captain, by the way, no Jews, please. So the captain writes the lady back. He says, Madam, thank you for your invitation. I will send you four of my finest, most prized officers. One of them is a lieutenant commander who graduated from the Naval Academy and has a master's degree from MIT. The second is a lieutenant, also a helicopter pilot, who graduated from Texas A&M and is working on his Ph.D. at Texas Tech. The third is an astronaut candidate. He went to SMU and is working on a doctorate at the University of Texas. And the fourth is also a lieutenant commander, the ship's doctor. He graduated from the University of North Texas and got a medical degree from the University of Tennessee. By the way, he is a senior fellow on the trauma surgery team at Walter Reed Medical Center. I will send these men over to your house on Thursday at 8 o'clock. Well, this makes Melinda's mother so happy. First, the girls will have a blast, and also this will drive the other mothers insane with jealousy. So Thursday rolls around, and exactly at 8 o'clock, Melinda's mother hears a polite rap at the door, and she opens it, and there on the porch stand four dangerously handsome black naval officers stunning in their dress blues. Melinda's mother's jaw drops open and she says, there must be some mistake. And one of the officers says, no ma'am, Captain Goldberg never makes mistakes. <laughs> 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 
Kathy and I just finished watching a remarkable television series. It's called A Small Light. And you can watch it on National Geographic or Hulu or Disney. It's about eight hours long, but it's worth every minute of it. A Small Light is about the Dutch woman, Meep Geese, who hid Anne Frank and her family in a hidden room behind a false wall at her workplace in Amsterdam. One of the most remarkable women of the 20th century, Meep Geese, playing her, Belle Pauli, is a movie star. I hope she wins an Emmy. Meep Geese wasn't actually Dutch. She was born in Vienna in 1909. And when she turned 11 in 1920, there were severe food shortages in Austria, and her mother was too poor to feed her, so her mother shipped Meep to Amsterdam, where Meep was adopted by a large, kind Dutch family. When she grew up, she became Otto Frank's secretary. That's why Meep Geese risked her neck hiding the Franks for two years because she remembered that when she came to Amsterdam so long ago, she'd been an alien and an immigrant. And she thinks to herself, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was homeless and you housed me. She decides to pay it forward. When the Nazis occupy Amsterdam and things are looking grim for the Jews, Otto Frank sits Meep Geese down and asks her to do an impossible thing, to hide eight people in a hidden room in the heart of Amsterdam and to bring them food every single day till the end of the war. And the most touching moment in a small light for me is when Meep answers instantly, tell me what to do, instantly immediately, without a pause, without a thought, without a consideration, almost before Otto Frank is finished speaking. Tell me what to do. So the Franks hide in that hidden room for two years, and then a craven, rapacious Dutchman betrays them to the Nazis. In August of 1944, two months after the Allies invade at Normandy, and eight months before Hitler dies and Germany surrenders. And when a Nazi stormtrooper shows up at Meep's workplace to arrest the Franks, Meep notices his accent. And she can tell right away that he's from Vienna, just like she was. And she starts speaking to him in German. He, she's the tiniest little thing. He towers over her with his pistol strapped to his hip. But she looks him right in the eye and in German says, You don't have to do this. You know this is wrong. You don't have to do this. And the tiniest flicker in his eyes and the fallen features of his face tell you he knows she is right. Meep Geese is on the avenue of the righteous among the nations at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. Kathy and I are very Dutch. Kathy's 100% Dutch. I'm 50% Dutch. Her maiden name is Van Dyken. And you can't get any Dutcher than that <laughs> unless you live in Amsterdam. So we're kind of proud of our Dutch heritage. Did you know that the Dutch have more names on the Avenue of the Righteous, second most names on the Avenue of the Righteous in the, of all the nations in the world? 5,910 names on the Avenue of the Righteous. That's second behind the 7,177 Polish names. But... 
with a population of only 9 million people in 1945, the Netherlands is number one per capita. One in every 1,700 Dutch people is on the avenue of the righteous, including Meep Geese. You know, when the diary of Anne Frank was published, all this adulation rained down on Meep, and she was so embarrassed, and she refused to think of herself as a hero. She's my hero. Well, eventually, Ruth and Boaz have a son, and they call him Obed. Eventually, Obed has a son, and Obed calls his son Jesse. Eventually, Jesse has a son, and Jesse calls his name David. And to the astonishment of every Hebrew in the land, David grows up to be the greatest regent in Israelite history and its most celebrated rock star. Eventually, David has a son and calls him Solomon. Solomon has a son, and Solomon's son has a son, and eventually, 42 generations later, 42 generations later, a baby is born in Bethlehem, where all this is happening, where Ruth and Naomi and Boaz live, where all of this is happening, a baby is born in Bethlehem, and his mother calls him Yeshua, or Joshua, Jesus in Greek, Jesus the Christ. Wonder of wonders, Jesus the Christ has a Gentile great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. So, we've been studying the book of Ruth five times very carefully. This is the last time. But before we quit, I should tell you that we don't even know if any of this ever happened. We don't know if Ruth is historical or fictional. Might have happened, or it might just be a charming short story a family would share with each other to entertain each other around the fireplace on a cold winter night. On the other hand, one scholar points out that if David truly, really, genuinely didn't have a Gentile great-grandmother, no self-respecting, loyal, Jewish storyteller would ever make it up in a million years. If it didn't happen, they wouldn't manufacture it. So maybe this beautiful woman, this splendid soul, really, truly, actually lived, gleaned, married, had babies, and died in Bethlehem a thousand years before Jesus was born there. I like to think so anyway. <laughs>